When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello one and all and welcome once again to The View from Elaine, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Uh, joining me, host Danny Kelly. Today are The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. Hello Charlie, hello James. On today's episode, we'll discuss Friday night's win over Nottingham Forest at the City Ground. We're doing this Monday morning. Friday evening seems like a million years ago now. Very odd the way the timing of these things work out. Although I suppose you could say it's given us time um, to fully digest the happenings at the city ground and to be more considered in our views. And to pass them on. You could say that, and maybe that won't be the case. We shall see. Hey, James, how are you doing? Hello. Overall, um, I'll start with you then, since since you so so politely made your presence known there, James. Um, what did you make it? A 2-0 win for Spurs. On paper, at least, a very, very handy uh, win for the Spurs. I think in general Spurs did a fairly good job of managing that game for the most part. There were a couple of spells where I definitely didn't feel like that in the moment where some of the kind of more risky elements of the risk and reward of Antibal felt made me quite uncomfortable, but I suppose that is kind of part of the process, isn't it, of, of getting used to this new system and particularly when you have players missing and you know players playing out of position or whatever. But you know, we said last week... But it was going to be a difficult game purely on the basis of like a Friday night just before Christmas against a team who whose fans love the manager and the manager is under a lot of pressure. A decent home record, yada yada yada. But to ride to ride that out, you know, they definitely Spurs definitely started the better team. Forrest came into it a bit more in the in the sort of second half of the first half, the second quarter of the game. But from 1-0, I mean, I know, you know, Spurs went down to 10 minutes, 20 minutes left. Actually, that last 20 minutes, I think, was the best 20 minutes of, of the whole game in terms of, like, game management from Spurs. I thought they were very good at um, sort of nipping in the bud any suggestion that there'd be some kind of comeback. I mean, they've kept the ball well uh, and still and still managed to kind of progress it up the pitch fairly regularly. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was... I wouldn't say it was kind of awe-inspiring, but it was a, a more than competent performance. I think it's a really good result. Um, I've said before many times, 2-0 is my favourite scoreline in football to win by. You, you don't get frightened by it being the most dangerous scoreline, no? Well, that's partly maybe why I love it so much, because you, you win 2-0 despite having had the most dangerous lead in football. <laughs> uh, I love 2 nils because it speaks to a certain level of control. You haven't had to overexert yourself. You've kept a clean sheet. But it's not like a grind. Um, I think it's a really good result. I mean, I know they'd lost a um, couple of home games before, but they were on a really good run prior to that. Um, and I think it was just one of those games where you have to get through it and do enough. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a game that will live long in the memory, but it's kind of what you want because the only way it probably would have done live long in the memory is if it had been a 
frustrating defeat or something like that. Whereas this is one you can just tick off um, and move on. And it sets them up. I do feel they're, these next few games are really important uh, for what Spurs is, the second half of Spurs' season looks like. You know, if they can keep pace, um, you know, stay in this kind of top four chase, then suddenly they've got players coming back. You're thinking, okay, they can really, they can really push on. If it doesn't happen, then, you know, then you think, well, maybe it becomes a season about the FA Cup or something like that. Um, so I think it's really important they got this win ahead of then Everton, which suddenly is looking like not such a home banker as it might have done last season or a few months ago. Uh, but no, I thought I thought they did well. And it was great to see Kulisevsky, um getting the plaudits again. The last 20 minutes was the most control Spurs had probably, and possibly because they weren't pressing quite so hard to get the ball forward quite so early. But um, there, were, there were one or two really good performances in the game. Clearly, head and shoulders, I guess, above everybody, exception maybe of Ben Davis, was once again Kulisevsky. Um, after the game, uh, Ange said, we've been working really hard with him to become more of a goal threat. We feel like it's the one aspect of his game where he needs to bridge the gap and he's taken that on board. Um, yep, it was a good finish, albeit a goalkeeper perhaps um, on a better day, might well have kept it out. And not kick the ball straight to them. <laughs> well, you, you can argue that that is, that that is due to Spurs' press. Yeah, that, that, that's the argument, isn't it? That, that's, the, that's the reward part of the risk and reward of throwing your team forward in, the, in these presses. Have we seen, by the way, the, the video of uh, Turner? I think it was from last summer or the summer before on some sort of... At, at some kind of training camp with the US, he refused to sign... A shirt, a, a, a USA shirt of a guy who was wearing who was wearing a Spurs shirt. So they, there you go. Yeah, karma. You're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, James, the, uh, the the impressive thing about Kulusevski, I thought, apart from the fact that he assisted the first goal and scored the second, was that he looked in different ways equally adept in two entirely different positions. Yeah, I, I mean that midfield role was a thing we kind of discussed. I think even last season. Uh, as a kind of possible option for him. But I, I vividly remember, and this isn't me throwing Charlie under the bus because I think I agreed with him. It, it, it's all very well and good saying it in, in sort of uh, in theory, but for it to actually work in practice is quite different. And, well, Charlie was wrong. It's worked, it's worked really well. It's worked really well in practice. I was spot on about Pedro Porro, wasn't I? And I was like, oh, he should play as a right winger. It's like, no, he absolutely shouldn't play as a right winger. But we, have, we, have, we haven't seen it, to be fair. I think the point there stands. It is very hard and it shows how good Kulisevsky is because that a lot of the true. time it's a kind of podcast topic spoken about by idiots like us, but actually it's really hard to do in practice. But he's that good. He's managed to make it work. Yeah, if you think about it, it does make perfect sense because he's so good on the ball. He's strong, powerful, quick, has like very good close control. And his kind of short-range passing is generally pretty decent. So he kind of has all of the attributes. And obviously he can drive forward with the ball really well, which I think we saw more in the Newcastle game than on Friday night. Should say as well, he's only, do he he's only doing it because he has to. And they've got missing players. Postacoglu still prefers to have him out wide on the right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, when Johnson had to go off after 25 minutes for the thing that we've still not seen a replay of... Um, it's the new sporting Lisbon disallowed goal. This, I think, this Brennan Johnson injury. I suppose, in a way, you could argue there was a degree of good fortune there because I don't, for all of Brennan Johnson's talents, and he did play a very good cross into the box for Kulusevski at Manchester City. We shouldn't forget. I don't, I don't see him cutting inside onto his left foot and swinging in a ball like that for Richarlison in the last minute of the half. I mean, the game's completely different about that substitution, so there's not really much point getting into that. But yeah, Kulusevski has 
stepped up in quite a big way when Spurs really needed him to because I think we were kind of left wondering where the creativity was going to come from in the team when Madison and then Bentenker for a second time got injured. But he really does seem to have like upped his output, both in terms of goals and assists. I think he's he's not quite, what is he, five and four, I think, in the Premier League. I think that's right. And a goal and an assist in each of his last two away games, which is pretty good going. So yeah, I mean, I don't know quite how that will kind of evolve over time in terms of what his role will be because I think I'm right in saying Solomon's kind of close-ish to a return. Charlie's kind of shaking his head there. It depends, depends on your definition of close. I don't think we'll see him before. There's that game against United in mid-January uh, and if the timeline from when he was first out follows, I think that is a possibility. But I don't think we'll see him before then. I love the medical reports these days where um, the relatively new state of fitness is running on grass. He's now running on grass. Um, okay, thank you very much indeed for that. Maybe he'll speed up and get on the grass sooner. I just want to say, like on Kulisevsky, I mean, that um, that thing that Andrew was talking about of him scoring more goals, I mean, that's such an important part of how Postacoglu plays. I remember when Postacoglu was appointed and talking to people who'd covered him at Celtic, they were saying so much was about having wingers who'll get on the end of things. And they were all saying Son and Kulisevsky will absolutely fly under him. And I remember when we were in... Um, Perth on the pre-season tour and we got we saw like an open training and they were doing constant work on uh cutbacks low low crosses uh, and that sort of thing um so clearly and just talked about it here there's a big thing they've worked on with him getting on the end of things obviously this goal was slightly different to that but yeah having wide forwards you can score is massive for Postacoglu and if he can and if he can be good on his right foot it's just makes such a difference I always go on about this but as a winger if you can go either way it just obviously it's transformational because it's so much harder for the defenders well one one of his issues has just been a slight reluctance to actually let the ball go shoot well I wonder if there's some kind of like that that's been some kind of tactical thing or part of this evolution has been like this is when you do shoot and this is when you don't shoot and he keeps getting in those positions where last season you would have cut inside at the edge of the box and taken a shot on his left foot Whereas maybe now the instruction is not to shoot from those kind of positions because the likelihood of scoring is incredibly low. But I did think it was quite notable on Friday night that he got the ball, what, kind of 30 yards from goal in fortunate circumstances. But he then like drove directly towards goal and only really had like the idea of shooting in his mind. Well, if he did well, um, we have to note as well, because it's um, not just a rare occurrence, I think for the first time, Richarlison has scored in successive Premier League games. I think you know there's a tendency to want with a 60 million pound player to go. Is this the moment? What would what would um, Jack Pitbrook say at this stage? Yeah, this is the moment. He's 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 finally arrived on the Tottenham stage. I thought he was good. Yeah, he was, and like it is worth remembering that that's how Ange started the season was Richarlison through the middle and Son out left. You know that's how he envisaged playing, and then obviously it wasn't really happening for Richarlison, so that's when he switched Son. Uh, to play through the middle. Yeah, I mean, it's massive. And whether Richarlison is kind of the long-term answer, there are probably a lot of people who are sceptical about that, but he doesn't really have to be. He just needs to be, you know, even for this season, if he can... Because he'll always put himself about. He'll be a nuisance. He's going to occupy defenders. If he can, you know, get to somewhere like a one in two, those kind of numbers, then... That will make a big difference, especially as, you know, we've spoken a lot about in recent weeks, Spurs do lack goal scorers in this team. That has been an issue with, you know, we talked about them not putting away their chances in certain games because often you'd look and you'd say, well, it's only really Son. So if Kudasevsky and Richarlison can 
add that output, of course, it makes a massive difference. And I think the reason why some why people are excited about this is because he was carrying an injury. And so it feels like, okay, well, now he's not and he's fully fit. We might see kind of the real Richarlison in inverted commas. I mean, I know this is easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, but it does seem mad that he had that injury for such a long time, seemingly. Uh, and, and I suspect wanting to be fit for the World Cup was part of this. But we, the injury went back before the World Cup, right? I mean, it does seem crazy that given he was only out after that surgery for what, like sort of four, five, six weeks. And now seemingly he's like, he looks really good. I don't know. It does seem it does seem quite mad that they didn't just do that at some point last season <laughs> when, when they had, you know, Kane and Son anyway and it wouldn't have been as big a miss given he wasn't playing particularly well or scoring anyway. I didn't think he was even out for two two whole weeks, was he, Charlie? It was over an international break, wasn't it? So he missed the, the game before, was it Wolves? The game before the international break and then whatever was after that. And if um, Rashalas did well, Kulisevsky did well, I thought Ben Davis was um, pretty good at the, at the back as well. Um, the obvious uh, villain of the piece was Yves uh, was a, it was a red card tackle. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. So no ifs, no buts, no maybes. But I've got a however. Um, and you have to note who the foul was on. Ryan Yates had spent the, the afternoon running around, booting Spurs players, um, pulling shirts at corners and not being in any way sanctioned by the referee. Um, and it also, and of course he doesn't hear this, but with the encouragement of the commentators on the television, who kept saying, oh, it's great, isn't it? The English game, lovely. Look at him, he's, he's involved in everything. Yeah, book him for everything he's involved in. You're right, obviously it is a red card. I mean, we were de- debating before we started recording. Actually, I did, we didn't really discuss it. I just said it and then we started recording. I, I, I didn't feel like that was the worst challenge in the game. I mean, there was uh, Yates on skip where the uh, Forrest ended up getting the free kick somehow. When there was kind of a bit of a sort of scissors there, there was... Who was it with the kind of elbow face in da- uh, elbow or kind of hand in Davis's face? That was pretty bad. The wrestling moves on Son in the first five minutes, and then there was a Murillo on Pedro Porro, just like a really bad like scissors challenge, where uh, you know it, it, even on even on Sky commentary they acknowledged it was a bad challenge, and then you got you're like I think he might have already been booked before that. I, I don't really want to get like kind of sucked into the kind of conspiracy theory of Premier League games not being fairly or well or evenly officiated since the Liverpool game. But it was another game where it did feel like Spurs were getting some fairly rough treatment. And if you look at fouls to yellow cards, which I know, you know, it, it's it's qualitative, not quantitative. But if you look at the number of fouls to yellow cards on those two teams, they're not got it right in front of me. I've got the fouls. So 16 fouls by Forrest. And I think, I think there were two yellow cards. Uh, 11 by Spurs and I think it's like sort of four or five and the red and look we're not disputing the red card but it did you know like, like Udogi getting booked in the first half for that kind of very gentle nudge in Yates's back I mean look I mean far be it for me to suggest that he's an idiot but that does now mean that Udogi is suspended for a game against Everton that I imagine Forrest will want Spurs to win Gary Neville made a point that uh, about something else that that uh, the tackle that um, Basuma did or, or worse variants of it what, I don't know what's going on in professional football, Charlie. The over-the-ball tackle, the over-the-top tackle, which I, which seemed to me to be a remnant of the past, you know, as, as much as paper programmes and fences around the ground. It's having a, a, a sort of... It's laid dormant like a sleeper agent for the past 20 years, and suddenly this, it's having a massive revival. It's like, it's like it's like Spandau Ballet going on tour again. Here comes the over-the-top tackle, ladies and gentlemen. If you've missed it for the last little while, come and see it at a Premier League ground near you. 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of them. I mean, clearly as well, the fact it's not a coincidence that there's far more scrutiny now as well. We look at them in a way that you might have got away with. I mean, the the interesting thing with that in in real time, they kind of play on and there's not much of a hoo-ha about it. Well, he got a yellow card. He got a yellow card, but in a kind of, he let the advantage go. He let them play. Like if he thought it was serious, you stop it. It wasn't like people were screaming and demanding. I'm not saying that means whether it's yellow or red. All I mean is it's one where in years gone by, you probably do it. It happens. It's a yellow. And then after the game, we say, oh yeah, maybe Basuma was lucky. To stay on. I would just say on, on the refing, the problem is in the Premier League, you often get refs with certain teams who view everything through the prism of Team X, in this case Nottingham Forest, are big, tough, strong men. Team Y are a bit soft and looking for fouls. And if you're viewing the game through the prism, which I'm through that prism, which I'm convinced some refs are given how they ref things, then that's how you see things. And so if there is a big meaty challenge from a player, it's kind of, as, as you say, as you heard in the commentary, it's, oh, that's kind of, it's a man's game. We want that kind of toughness. If that's your, if that's how you're viewing the game, then that informs how you referee it. And I, I just, and, and, and it's so obvious, you know, you hear commentators talking about it. It stands to reason that that's how a lot of refs are going to see the game as well. And a lot of people in this country do view football like that. But it's just incredibly frustrating because then, it means the bar is so high. If you are, if you are just seeing someone as being big, strong, and tough, then that means it's re- it's a really high bar for it to be a foul because otherwise it can be kind of written off as yeah that you know that's it's a man's game and then and it's doubly frustrating because then you get bookings for really little soft things like shirt pulls because it's a counter or whatever, but not for tackles that could injure and endanger an opponent. But that's I guess the problem with the laws of the game as they are. Isuma, um second red card of the season. Uh, I think that's an automatic four match ban. Then the Afcon, he's effectively done to the to the running, isn't he? For Spurs, he'll be back when Benzema goes back, won't he? So let's see how that works out for him. With Basuma, if he misses now, so this is up to six games he will have missed through suspension. And I actually think uh, Charlie will know more about this kind of thing than me. He'll be, will he be suspended for a game after Afcon? Because I think there are three league games before he goes. And then one after he comes back. Yeah, but he's also misses the FA Cup one. So I think that will be the fourth. Again, it's confusing because for, if it's for five bookings or something, it's only for the Premier League. But if it's a red card, it stretches to other competitions as well, which I actually think that rule should change. I, I think nowadays, the pre- when the Premier League is so clearly the priority of every team, I think sometimes when you get a little Carabao Cup game thrown in there, I think most teams are delighted that it's not a Premier League game. But that's kind of by the by. Crucially, that has ruined the maths that I've just done to work out that he if he'd missed six Premier League games, it was fifteen percent ish of or probably sixteen percent rounding up. Yeah, but he'll get up there soon enough. This won't be his last band of the season. I'd be very surprised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, and look, I mean, the difference between Romero and Basuma, I guess, is as it stands, and this could change in January. Romero is obviously going to be strapped back in the team when he's available because the drop off in terms of quality after him is so vast. But if Saar, Bentica, Madison, Lacelso are all available. I mean, Anova is like a sort of, you know, there's a kind of structure within that midfield that you need to make work and whatever. And, you know, Lacelso, for example, couldn't play deep properly. But if everyone's available, do you pick Masuma if he's constantly going to get suspended? I reckon possibly not. Yeah, I think Benton as the six suddenly becomes uh, a much more viable option. Having, I thought Basuma was basically undroppable after the first however many games of the season when he was so good. And there was something Postacoglu said early on about how he had a word with Basuma about his timekeeping. And it was very much framed as a kind of, and he's learnt now, he won't be doing that again. But 
who knows? I mean, I do. Yeah, I do. Just wonder if there will come a point where you you do become frustrated. You do lose patience with someone who um, has disciplinary issues on the pitch. You know, silly bookings and that kind of thing. I do. I do. Also, we did kind of offer the sporadic nature of his games to Spurs, kind of like in October, November, when when he was suspended and there was an international break and whatever, as like a defence for his loss of form and that he'd kind of lost the rhythm. But now he's not going to play for Spurs for two months. I mean, how's he going to be when he comes back? How's he going to be when he comes back then? I do. I mean, I take your point entirely about if everyone's fit, about the place, place being under threat. But I have to say, you know, Benton Kerr obviously is a brilliant player. The way we currently play, Basuma's ability to take the ball from the back four on the half turn and to beat the first man, it looks very important to me. Um, and maybe Benton Kerr could do that too. We we, we shall see. What about Kulisevsky? Can we play Kulisevsky as the deep line midfielder? And <laughs> we're going to end up with Kulisevsky. We're going to end up with Kulisevsky as a centre back by the end of the season, Repl- replacing the inj- replacing the suspended Romero at right centre back. Can you play as an inverted fullback? Probably could, couldn't you? Want to see it? <laughs> um, one other player I thought we'd mention, uh, if you like, uh, is the goalkeeper. Um, I thought it was really odd that the 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 wonder save that he made to keep the ball out with his leg. Is it just me, or was that just tremendously lucky that the ball hit him exactly where it did and how it did? Or did he have to be there? I'm not sure. I mean, you're probably right to a degree, but I think some of the some of the greatest saves of all time are sort of down to the goalkeeper standing where they otherwise might not be and being in a position to do something mad. Uh, no, I'm not underplaying. I just I just thought it was a little bit... When you see a goalkeeper take up an amazing position, then ally that to incredible foresight and agility and you think wow that is just how could you even think about saving that shot um look it was a very important save and i like a goalkeeper who has a bit of luck about him as well the point i actually wasn't being negative the point is going to come on about is that each week that goes by and all goalkeepers make mistakes um vicario just just carries on being himself and you can see that he's now starting to be one of those goalkeepers who looks at the other defenders come on and at the end did am i right in thinking he got them together in a huddle at the end um, to celebrate a clean sheet. And, and of course, the celebration police will be asked, a clean sheet at Nottingham Forest who are going down <laughs> after 114 defeats on the spin. Sorry, a clean sheet away from the Premier League is a valuable thing. And they had 10 men for 20 minutes. It was their first clean sheet since, what, like Fulham, I think? Yeah, they, all, they always score and they nearly always concede Spurs, don't they? Yeah. So you can see why, particularly for him, I mean, I don't know if he's on a bonus, but uh, if he is, you can see why he might be enthusiastic about that. He's come into a team where... Previous goalkeeper Larice has been so central to to the project for a to use that horrible phrase for a decade to come in and within you know it's not half a season to be so established and so so powerful personality that you can be giving out to your fellow defenders. I think I think it all augurs very well for the future. Now, of course, come Everton, that means you're going to throw one in off the back of his own head, isn't he? But um, that's the nature of the goalkeeping. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be sort of too disrespectful to Lloris, but I, and we were kind of sort of respectfully down on Lloris last season. I think that's probably safe to say. But it does really highlight the level that he had kind of slumped to last season, maybe the back end of the season before Lloris. Well, actually, not the back end of the season before. That's probably unfair. But uh, the, the difference between like the way they approach the game is totally different. Or, or the difference between how Lloris was approaching a game last season and how Vicario does now. Like like the way he dominates a penalty area in a way that, in a way that Lloris just wouldn't do 
like coming for balls at corners and whatever, where Lloris is so often so passive. You know, maybe it is that thing that you often see in football where uh, where the opposite approach just feels like the right approach just on the basis of it being different to what was there before that wasn't working. But uh, yeah, it, it, it feels like a, such a perfect fit for this team, both in terms of sort of his technical strengths and his personality. Postacoglu's talked about it, although just on that, the sa- that save is actually quite a Larice one. Stays rooted to his line <laughs> from across and then makes like an incredible reflex stop. Postacoglu said a lot that the first signing he wanted to make was the goalkeeper. That was the what. That was the first thing he felt he needed to change. So clearly, he as as everyone did could see how much uh, Spurs just couldn't play the way Postacoglu wanted to play with that kind of goalkeeper. You look at all the te- the top teams in the Premier League and they have a goalkeeper who can do the kind of things Vicario does. That said, he's he's really exceeded everyone's expectations. I think he's been so so good, and and he's got a shout for being there. Spurs' player of the season so far. That um, clean sheet, by the way, you know, we we, we Spurs keep very few of them. Um, but on the other side, on the positive, um, with Liverpool and Brighton failing to score over the weekend, Liverpool had 30-odd shots. So I'm not sure how they failed to score. Spurs remain the only team to have scored at least one goal in every game this season. And I think, you know, that speaks to an attacking intent that they set out to score goals. The thing we begged for, pleaded for um, at various times in the last two or three years, set out to be positive, you might get a positive result. So that, that stat is backing that up. Do we know Spurs have scored in, I think it's 29 consecutive Premier League games now, which I think is the joint fifth longest run in the history of the Premier League? I had no sense of that until the Premier League tweeted it last night about Brighton were on a run of 32. I think it ended yesterday. Um, so, yeah, Spurs are quite close to kind of moving into the upper echelons. Arsenal 55 wow. times in a row, which I'm assuming was uh, May 2001 to November 2002. So, sort of a, a pre-inter-invincibles. Yeah, it was the season they won the league. They scored in every, in 0102, they scored in every game. I mean, it's funny as well because that takes in the that that Conte, Stellini, Mason few week. Pe- I mean, that's the back end of last season as well. You will not rewrite that history, Charlie. Try as you may, I promise you. <laughs> yeah, a golden age. Actually, <laughs> I think Stellini's been unfairly remembered. Kane's goal at Newcastle could prove crucial. Um, I mean, we're probably going to mention him, but Ben Davis, well, in that defensive. I mean, he's just he's so good and like. Um, Postacoglu talked about him in the pre-match press conference and he made that incredible tackle which obviously we spoke about last week to deny Isaac put Newcastle 1-0 up big moment in that game he's just such a dream of a kind of squad player is maybe harsh but that, that kind of is what he is you know he's, he's not a first choice in this team but he's so reliable and at a time where we've seen Dyer and Lloris and even Hoybier to an extent um, marginalised and, and barely playing Ben Davis just keeps coming in and and adapting. He's such a better footballer than people give him credit for. Like he's 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 a really good player. He is a reliable, dependable player who will always give you like anything from a sort of seven out of ten to an eight out of ten or or something in between. But he he isn't just the sort of meat and potatoes, you know, like tub thumping reliable guy. He yeah, he definitely has technical qualities. It does make you wonder these last couple of performances. Uh, like how and why he didn't end up playing at centre-back in a two at any point from Vertonghen leaving in whatever it was, 2020 to now, to this, to this last couple of games. Uh, 
It does seem quite frustrating. I mean, obviously he played left back loads, so you know he was in the team. It wasn't like he was just got sat on the bench. And and he played Conte played a back three, didn't he? So he played as a left centre back. So I guess that wipes out that whole period. But it, it does make you think of how varied a career he's had for Spurs because Davis played as a, as a left wing back for Pochettino, and, and and when the wing backs were incredibly attacking, he's obviously played as a left back in a four. He played as that left centre back under Conte and was really good when they got top four at the end of that that season uh, and now this so amazing he's only just turned 30 as well he's a lot younger than people I think people think of him as a, a real veteran but he joined Spurs and he was so young um, just to say thank you very much for all of that uh, important win against Nottingham Forest um, and Spurs had a second huge win over the weekend we previewed it on the on the podcast a few days ago Spurs' women earned a historic first win in front of nearly 20,000 at White Hart Lane at the uh, Spurs Stadium with a win over Arsenal. The Athletics' uh, Charlotte Harper has all the details. Manager Robert Villaham tweeted, Dear Chat GPT, show me how Tottenham Hotspur want to score goals. And the only goal on Saturday started with keeper Barbara Votikova, a seven-pass move which took 40 seconds. It was a delight to watch and epitomised Villaham's style of play. Being brave on the ball, playing out of Arsenal's press rather than hoofing it long and dominating the game. Arsenal had plenty of chances themselves. 31 shots, but all eight on target were outside the box. They should have been more clinical and at times Spurs rode their luck. But they were made defensively compact, led by captain Molly Bartrip in the second half. And that roar when she was egging on the crowd at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium said it all. What's really important now is that Villaham and his squad consolidate upon this historic result after Christmas. A huge win and a great goal. It is worth saying that Arsenal had 31 shots of goal, which makes the victory all the more sweet, I think. It's much funnier. If you like, see the difference, I mean, you know, and Charlie and, and Charlotte wrote that piece last week about like Spurs' kind of journey in WSL and, and trying to kind of close a gap on those top teams. But Arsenal are bringing on like, well, Arsenal have already got like, Beth Mead and Alessia Russo and whoever else up front. And then they bring on Viv Miedemar towards the end of the game. I mean, like that, that it's, it is kind of, and I know Spurs have Beth England, but it is kind of talk and cheese in terms of how those squads and teams have been put together over time. Uh, and that is, of course, because of Arsenal have put a lot more investment into their women's team over the last, I was going to say decade, but longer than that than Spurs. But yeah, it is, you know, they're, they're up against it in a fixture like that. And it was an amazing game. And the goal is, and I know the two managers don't want kind of their styles to necessarily be kind of compared directly, but it was the most sort of Spurs of this season goal that I think any Spurs team has scored this season. Like the it's better than, in terms of an encapsulation of Antibal, it's a better goal than any of the goals that men's team has scored this season. Listen, um, following on from our, from our feature on last week's show, you can head to The Athletic right now to read all about the week that Charlie and Charlotte spent behind the scenes with the Spurs women. It's absolutely fascinating, so please check it out. And I guess Charlie needs to spend um, a lot more time with the women's team because he's now their, their lucky charm um, following that victory against Arsenal. I did have a sneaky feeling. I was messaging a few people off the back of the piece about uh, the, the derby on Saturday. And I just, because the Conti Cup game was a draw in normal time before the penalties. So, yeah, I don't know, I did have a sneaky feeling. Obviously, as, as James said, they did ride their luck, but... Yeah, it's an amazing result. Look, if anyone senior at Spurs is listening, if you just want to give the Athletic amazing amazing access to every team every week, 
this is what we can do. Welcome back. This is The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare from The Athletic are with me as well. Um, of course, Jose Mourinho, uh, I suppose I can't let it go with him. He can't let it go with us either, if I uh, might be so bold to call Spurs us. Um, this week's quote from uh, Jose Mourinho is, This was a club that has an empty trophy room, then sacks me two days before a final. I mean, come on. Um, I saw that quote. And I, I presume it came from um, um, maybe the, the press conference after the Bologna game last night. No, I, I, I think I think it was before the game that Roma lost to Bologna, Bologna. And then after the game, he was having to sort of say, I still want to manage this club. I don't want to get sacked. So I don't know. Bologna are the surprise package in Italy this year. I went and saw them live when I was in Bologna for a weekend. And I was very impressed, I have to say. They play excellent football. It would have been an even more salty defeat for Mourinho because they're managed by the more handsome Thiago Motta, who was in the Inter yeah. Milan team, yeah, that he won the Champions League with. Yeah, he was the guy who got sent off in the um, for elbowing, in inverted commas, uh, Busquets in that semi-final. Apparently he was on John Obi Mikel's podcast. Other podcasts are available, I suppose I should say. But I mean, he says that every, he says that all the time. I mean, that that this isn't the first time he said this, is it? I mean, presumably that's quite a very Chelsea-heavy podcast. That John Obi Mikel and Jose Mourinho, presumably a lot of a big Chelsea loving. So I'm not surprised that uh, you know they came back with a little Spurs dig. But yeah, like I say, I think Roma are down to seventh now, and he's worried. He's he's worried about getting sacked. So I am very capable of very small and vindictive thinking. And each time he does this, that says these quotes, I am more and more delighted that his perfect record of winning a trophy with every club he's been at has been destroyed by Spurs. And when, as an old man, he stood on the sidelines of some junior game involving one of his grandchildren and he's managing them towards their league title, he'll be going, oh, God, I didn't win anything at Spurs. I'm delighted <laughs> for him. Um, Lord Trevor, uh, on, the, on, the tweet, on the Twitters, um, I said, taking into account injuries, suspensions and international duties. Thanks, Lord Trevor. We started this um, podcast in tremendous mood. He says, taking into account uh, injuries, suspensions and international duties, who are your starting 11 in January? And, uh, and that has to mean we can't be sellers. Also, does it mean that we can't be sellers? I suppose it's going to be really, really short in the early. Well, let's say that even the, the, the FA Cup tie against Burnley, they're going to be really, really short. Well, I do. I do agree with the point about it makes it a lot harder to sell players um, because they are short, and so you think of people like Hoybier, maybe the Celso. I guess the Celso's potentially played his way into um, you know being a viable option, but they 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 are taking a risk. That said, as I've said many times, they don't play many times. They only play twice in the league in January, and one of those isn't till January thirty first. So you know you shouldn't be making long-term decisions based just on essentially that uni- that United game on January the fourteenth for the sake of potentially what twenty minutes or something. Um, but it it does make it harder, and also it, the problem is when you sell someone, not always, but often you kind of then need to replace them, and that just creates another issue. And you don't want to have too many things to be addressing in January. It's hard enough to address a couple, which already are priorities for Spurs: a, a centre back and a forward. 
So I don't. I think they'll be reluctant to let players go. But you're right. It feels unlikely to me they're going to rush into signing like a midfield player on the basis of needing them for two games. No, but there are, there are scenarios where you it could be if Isla Celso doesn't recover, I mean, you you could end up with Skip and Hoiberg um, behind. Kuliszewski's uh, going to have to play up front, isn't he, in, in the forward line because Son will be away. This is the point about other players, and I think we mentioned this a couple of times before. If they are really going to sign, a, if they want to sign a forward player in January and a centre back, like if they get that done early and that forward player is available for the Manchester United game, say, even if they're only on the bench, it does give them rotating op- the rotation option that otherwise they wouldn't have. And you know, with all due respect to players like Donnelly and Valiz, there's reason they played. They haven't been playing loads of minutes, despite some people wanting them to. It's because a manager doesn't think they're ready to do that. So. If they're serious about like strengthening the squad with a kind of top forward, like getting that done early could make quite a big difference. Yeah, I, I think. What do I know? But I, I think they will get somebody in midfield as well. Um, not, not on loan. I'm guessing um, because long term you, you can't see him hanging on to Hoiberg, maybe even Skip um, and Lacelso. You know, he's still if Madison's fit. He's, he's. he's you know he's bench warmer, so I, I, th- I think they might we might see a loan in midfield to try and just get through that early stages of the, of the year. I was wondering about that, but I my thinking there is that because no one in Europe has money now, that like the big clubs don't have these massive unwieldy squads full of players that they're desperate to get shot of. And like you know, ten years ago you'd go to Real Madrid or Barcelona and to take the fringe player who'd barely played any minutes in the first half of the season, they'd be decent. But now I'm just not sure, one, on the basis of how where Spurs are, two, given how specific Andy is about the way he wants his team to play, and and three, uh, the fact that these big European teams don't have massive squads anymore, or as big, it just feels unlikely they're going to be able to do a deal like that to me. Thank you both. It's been an absolute joy. See you again on Thursday. Thanks for listening. And once again, for those of you who can't listen to us next Thursday, happy Christmas to you all. The Athletic.